When you think of the 1936 Olympics, probably the first thing that comes to mind is Jesse Owens, uh, an African-American, defeating Adolf Hitler in front of all the crowds and Nazi Germany and so forth. But there was a lot more going on there. There's a great story that you probably hadn't heard of. I certainly hadn't. And it's a great new book written by Daniel James Brown, uh, New York Times bestselling author. The book is The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Well, Daniel, great having you on. Let's talk a little about those Olympics, first of all. They weren't your typical Olympics. In fact, that was probably more going on there than sports than any other Olympics we've seen. Yeah, you know, I think there probably are dozens of great stories that took place during those uh, Berlin Olympics. Um, and uh, I think a lot of them were, you know, eclipsed by the enormous uh, coverage that the Jesse Owens story got. And I mean, I think rightly so. I think the Jesse Owens story is the preeminent story coming out of, out of those games. But um, it did sort of suck all the oxygen out of the air in terms of uh, press coverage. So, so I suspect there were there were still other great stories coming out of those games. You know, the historical backdrop was so spectacular. Well, let's talk a little about that, Daniel, first up, because I think it's really important to set the stage. People don't realize, you know, this was not just a sporting event. Uh, the Nazis had some particular propaganda goals in mind, didn't they, with these Olympics? Absolutely. The, the Nazis staged the 36 uh, Olympics as an enormous distraction from what was happening, the, the reality of what was happening uh, in Germany. I was really struck as I did the research. I always knew that the 36 games were, were used as a propaganda tool, but I, until the, I did the research, I had no idea the extent to which they, um, the Nazis, and particularly, particularly Joseph Goebbels at the Ministry of Propaganda, um, the, the lengths to which they went to uh, conceal the reality of Germany from the thousands and thousands of people that, all over the world that came to Berlin that summer. What are they trying to do, uh, Daniel? Were they trying to paint the picture of this wasn't this hate-filled place, but it was really good? And also, weren't they trying to also push the idea that the Aryan race was the super race and all that? Absolutely they were. And um, I, think, I think Hitler's primary, Hitler originally was opposed to, to staging the games in Berlin because he didn't want people of other races traipsing through Germany, is literally the way he put it. But um, I think their primary goal was to both portray, portray Germany as a modern, enlightened, civilized state, and also, more importantly, to cover up what was really happening uh, in Germany during those years. They went to great lengths to turn Berlin into almost a movie set. Uh, they they hand-swept the streets, they whitewashed old buildings and put pots of geraniums in front of abandoned apartments to make them look occupied. They rounded up gypsies and, and homeless people and anybody else that might be undesirable and herded them off into camps so that they wouldn't be seen by people coming to Berlin for the games. They went to extraordinary lengths uh, to create a sort of fantasy uh, version of, of Germany. And the famous director, Lenny Reifenstahl, uh, that was a big thing, right, because she was going to film this thing, again, to take that image that you, they're drawing and really show it to the rest of the world that couldn't be there. Yes, and she produced a film called Olympia that was um, had, had huge uh, circulation uh, in the years right after the, the games and, and were a very effective propaganda tool for the Nazis in those you know, several years before the Nazis showed their true hand when they invaded Poland. Um, 
Lenny Riefenstahl was a huge part of that uh, of that portrayal of, of uh, Germany as a particularly enlightened and civilized place. Well, let's talk specifically now about the University of Washington's crew, which was the uh, the team that won the gold in Berlin. Uh, first of all, when I heard you know University of Washington and our studios are really close to the University of Washington. In fact, my daughter goes there. I was kind of surprised because I was thinking, you know, at that time, in particular, wasn't it Harvard and Yale and those Eastern schools that were the big powerhouses and crew? Yes, particularly in those days, the Ivy League schools um, were considered largely preeminent in in rowing, and there was a kind of classic class distinction that was pretty much baked into the pie when people thought about rowing. Most of the rowers from the East Coast were kids who had learned to row in prep schools, um, and in many cases they were the sons of bankers or lawyers or U.S. senators or other prominent citizens. Um, These boys from Washington were a rough-and-tumble bunch that came from dairy farms and uh, logging towns around Washington State. And so they were a very different. Uh, they were a very different kind of bunch of boys than uh, than what one assumed would be uh, the 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 most likely kind of crew to become uh, national champions and Olympic champions. Well, in 1936, the heart of the depression were these guys that were just coming from families that were struggling to get by day by day. Yes, very much so. Um, all, all nine of them really. There's there's eight oarsmen and then the coxswain in the boat. So there's nine boys in the boat. All of them, to to some extent, were struggling during the Depression, some more than others. The the emotional heart of the story really centers on one rower, Joe Rance, um, who who literally was penniless uh, through much of this time and and had to stay on crew uh, if he was going to survive because only by staying on crew did he uh, was he assured of a part time job that would allow him to uh, to have a roof over his head and and some food on the table. So. Yeah, they, they, these were these like like so many Americans during those years. These were kids who were who were really feeling the bite of the depression. And that's why this book is so interesting. It's not just a sports story or so forth. It goes into detail. It's one of those really in-depth stories that particularly shine in the Olympics. Now we're talking about the University of Washington's crew, which we said didn't have the advantages that they had in the Ivy League and so forth. How did these guys learn how to do this? Because as you say. Those people out in the East were doing this since they were kids and they're learning. Whereas these guys get together, I mean, they may have had all the physical attributes, but how did they learn in that short a time to be such a powerhouse? Yeah, when, when these kids showed up at the Shell House, you know, that first fall, they didn't know one end of or from another. Uh, so they had to learn it all from scratch. They had a couple of great mentors. They had a, a coach who, although he was very severe, his name was Al Albrechtson, he was very tough, a difficult mm-hmm. man in many ways. But he, but he was a good coach, and, and he taught them an enormous amount. But they were also under the influence of there was um, a, a man named George Yeoman Pocock, who was the boat builder for the school. But he was much more than a boat builder. He was, uh, he was something of a sage and a wise man and a philosopher. And um, he was also an extraordinarily good oarsman. And he probably shaped these boys and taught them at least as much as Coach Ulbrichsen did, although his his method was much more gentle and 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 very different. So they had uh, they had terrific guidance, uh, and they over the three years that they came together as a crew, they became 
they became arguably the greatest collegiate crew of, of all time. And there must have been that teamwork, you know, again, because they did come from these similar backgrounds. It's a once-in-a-lifetime shot. It had to be one of these rag-to-the-riches to stories that, you know, you read about, the, uh, and, of course, it, it gives us all chills, and it's really the, the whole American spirit coming uh, at a time when a really difficult circumstances were abound. Yeah, and, and I think that's one reason that they were as popular as they were in their day was because they were ordinary Americans. You know, they weren't Ivy League educated, and they weren't... Uh, they weren't Oxford kids. They were, these were ordinary Americans with ordinary lives and ordinary jobs, and a lot of people could identify with that and did identify with that. And, uh, and I, I, that gave them a huge you know, boost in terms of their popularity and, and what they represented ultimately when they wound up in, in Germany facing this, this Nazi crew. The, the things that these very ordinary American boys represented was a very stark contrast to what the the boys in the German boat represented. Oh, yeah. Now, was the Husky community in Washington, again, Seattle, not what it is today, uh, was still considered, you know, kind of an outpost. Uh, yeah. w- w- did the community get, get around them? I mean, were they kind of fired up about this, or was, did they do this kind of in, uh, in hiding? No, no. By the time, by 1936 especially, by the time they were ready to go off to the Olympics, um, Seattle was very excited about them. The, the excitement built over a number of years as, as Washington began to win the big regattas and, and win national championship. And by the time, um, by the time they were ready to go off um, to the national uh, title races in Poughkeepsie and then if they won those, go on to the Olympic trials in the Olympics, Seattle was in a frenzy about them, actually. Uh, the the summer of the Olympics, uh, the radio dealers in Seattle ran out of radios. They couldn't couldn't get enough in stock because everybody wanted to tune in to listen to to that gold medal race in in Berlin. So there was an enormous amount of interest uh, in the Seattle area. Uh, yeah, yeah. you could see, you could almost feel the excitement. You know, just hearing you. Tell us about what it was like for the crew when they got to Germany. I mean, obviously, we we talked about what was going on there. I imagine a lot of these people had not been, or if any of them, had never been out of the country, uh, and let alone to get in the middle of that. By that time, everybody knew there was probably going to be trouble in this part of the world. It was everybody was talking about it. What was their feeling when they got there, and how were they uh, received? Um, you know, the Germans went way out of their way to make them feel very at home. Um, that was part of the propaganda ploy. Not just these boys, but all the athletes and the tens of thousands of Americans that came there. To tell you the truth. They largely succeeded. Most Americans who came back from those uh, 36 Olympics thought Germany was a modern, efficient, clean, um, well-run place. And some of them came back out, you know, actually admiring what Hitler had done. Now, they changed their views very quickly when, when, when the reality came to light. But, but the reality uh, in, in 1936 was that that propaganda effort was, was very successful. And um, the boys that went there were, they were not at all politically inclined. They, they were focused on other things. But um, for the most part, they, they thought that, uh, that Germany was a fairly nice place. But was there a patriotic feel? Because at that time, you know, the world had just gotten through with World War I. You could almost see World War II on the horizon, country versus country, that kind of thing. Where... Did it dawn on these guys how important it was representing the United States in this world event? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there was a consciousness that, um, that Hitler was going to be an issue. And so walking into the Olympic Stadium for the opening ceremonies, I think not just these crew guys, but pretty much all the American athletes there that summer, they, they felt that you know, there, there was a value system at stake here, uh, that they were representing uh, their country and their flag, of course, but they were also representing a way of life and a view of the world. That, that much was clear. And so there was, um, there was a, there was a these, these nine boys uh, who definitely felt that there was um, something very significant at stake here. Well, I think people are going to really enjoy the story of these boys because each one has their own individual uh, background and so forth, and they come together. It's just one of those great American stories. How did you get involved in it? Though? I understand it had something to do with, with a neighbor or something or uh, of your father or something. Yeah, it was uh, my neighbor. The story walked into my living room six six years ago. My neighbor uh, Judy came to me, and she said that um, she was reading one of my earlier books to her father, who was living under hospice care at her home. He was in the last couple of months of his life, and he was enjoying that book. And he wanted he wanted to meet me, so uh, she asked if I'd come down and, and meet her father. So the next day, I went down and I met this elderly gentleman named Joe Rance, and. Uh, and it was when I sat down with Joe and he began to talk about his very poignant experience growing up during the Depression. And then he began to talk about how he had begun to row at the University of Washington and how that had begun to transform his life and how he had ultimately wound up rowing for this gold medal in Berlin. Uh, I was just absolutely mesmerized from the story, by the story from that first time that, that Joe told it to me. And, uh, and so I decided that very day, I asked Joe if I could write a book. Uh, actually, I said, can I write a book about you and your life? And he said, no, but you could, you could write a book about all the boys in the boat. So, so that's what I set out to do. Yeah, it's funny how sometimes, uh, like you say, your, your next book, you just walk in the door like that. And is it, was it one of those things, Daniel, where when you heard it, you just knew, wow, this, this story has to be told beyond just me? Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, you know, so I knew the first time Joe told me the rough outlines of the story, it was a great story, but you can never be sure until you get to know all the details that it's going to pan out and be as great as you hoped. And in this case, I have to say that as I got to know the the, the other eight boys in the boat, through, through their families mostly, and, and all the circumstances, this was a story that didn't peter out. It actually got better and better as I got to know the other the other young men and, and the details of the circumstances. It, it was a story that just the deeper I got into it, the, the better it got as a story. I think it's important, too, because it's such a crucial part of world history, you know, the, the lead up to World War Two and so forth. And this certainly was an iconic event at that time. And it's great to get the stories because you hate to see these people pass away and just get the story lost, to, you know, strictly to memory. Yeah. And, it, you know, that was one of the things that was really gratifying for me about writing the book was that the family members of all nine boys in the boat, all of them have been sitting on this story for 75 years just wishing that somebody would come along and tell it. And so when they found out that I was writing a book about it, you know, they were so, they were so excited. They, they just deluged me with, um, with information. And, and so it, it's because, you know, they were afraid the story would die as their fathers died. And uh, yeah. so it's been very gratifying to me to see their excitement and enthusiasm and to know that those stories were, were, were captured and, and they won't 
they haven't died out with the with the last of the of the boys. Well, let's talk just for a few minutes about rowing itself. I mean, did you know anything about rowing when when you started this thing, or was this all a, a learned thing? Because I know very little about it. You know, I, except for you know, I've seen it in the Olympics, that kind of thing. But uh, in terms of the details, was that something new to you? Um, actually, I didn't know the first thing about rowing when I started this, and that was one of my big concerns. Um, in fact, the day after I met with Joe, I had a moment of sort of panic as I, it occurred to me that I was going to write about a sport that I don't participate in. Um, but fortunately, just as the family members of these guys all um, got excited about it, uh, the current crew at the University of Washington and their coaches also got excited, and so they... They taught me an enormous amount about the sport uh, over the course of several years. And, and then other people who row found out what I was doing, and, and they, they got involved, and they read drafts of the manuscript. And so, so I had an enormous amount of help from, from, from people who row at a very high level, and, and, and that was really helpful. Yeah, and now how has the sport changed from those days of 36? I understand it's different materials used and such. Yeah, well, nowadays the, the boats are... Um, in those days, the boats were beautiful. They were made out of cedar, and they're just they're, they're gorgeous things to look at. But they were relatively heavy and slow compared to today's boats. Today, the boats are built out of carbon fiber, which is a very strong, very light material, and and they go much faster because the boats are lighter. And actually, also the uh, both in men's rowing and women's rowing, the athletes are bigger than they used to be. Mm-hmm. If you look at pictures of these nine kids from 1936, they're just skinny. You can see their ribs. Uh-huh. Um, they're tall, skinny kids. The kids that row nowadays, the young men and women that row nowadays, are are big, husky athletes, much better nourished. And so there's bigger, stronger people in the boats, and the boats are lighter, and so they go they go faster now. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, you know, I, I think Daniel's people hear this in their minds. I know I can. I can picture this as a great film, and I understand that they're actually looking at that, aren't they? Uh, yeah, there's actually a movie deal in place, and um, I'm actually going to be talking later today with, with the movie people uh, a little bit. Um, I, I can't, you know, you never know with movies oh, that yeah. they're going to happen for sure uh, until they actually happen, but uh, it all looks good right now. They they seem to be moving forward with it. Well, we wish you the best of luck. I think people, you know, start with the book. It's a great read. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, Daniel, I know you have a website, too. Where do we send people, first of all, to look up more? Sure, uh, a couple places. One is my website, which is just very simple. It's just www.danieljamesbrown.com. And there's also a um, Facebook page, uh, The Boys in the Boat on Facebook. That's excellent. And the book, I imagine we can get anywhere. Should be able to get in any bookstore or online book vendor, yep. Good luck, Daniel. Really appreciate it. Hope to have you on again. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> 